Geekville Radio. Broadcasting to you out of an old wooden shack in the heart of a deep forest, Geekville presents Examining the Dead, your monthly excursion into the world of classic horror and mysticism. Well, hello, my freaky darlings. It's been a little while since we've done an Examining the Dead, but it is time to do one again. I, of course, am your horror host, the crazy train, Jonathan Bullock, and I am, as usual, joined by the greatest producer in the history of podcasting, the mayor of Geekville himself, Seth Zildman, a.k.a. Zandrax, up there, kind of moving more out of the underground bunker you've had in Chicago, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, with restrictions kind of finally letting up, yeah, I'm able to venture out into the uh, above ground, and my, my skin is not so pale anymore. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm the best producer, but I will say I'm probably the best producer of horror in Geekville. I think I'll, I'll take okay. that. that, that, that <laughs> you put a caveat on that. <laughs> Maybe one of the reasons we haven't done a lot of examining the deads in the last you know, 18 months is because the pandemic has been like a real horror movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. 2020 was kind of a horror show in and of itself, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's, it's inspired a lot of horror novels to come. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, a lot of us horror fans, we see what was going on. Like, yeah, we've, we've been telling you people, we've been warning you. So anyway, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do our normal examining the dead this month. We're gonna start out with a quarters report and talk a lot of of current and soon to be released movies and video games that are horror related. And then the entire last two thirds of the show are gonna be dedicated to this, I guess, the love it or hate it subgenre that's popular now in horror, found footage. We're gonna review. Two found footage movies, the classic Blair Witch and a fairly new franchise called The Blackwell Ghost, which Seth has actually seen both these movies, so he can really add something to it, which is kind of unusual for you on Examine the Dead, isn't it, Seth? <laughs> well, I do what I can. Right, and then we will move in to finish off the show. We'll go into, into the crystal ball, and we're going to look into the crystal ball and talk about the history of found footage as a subgenre and where we think it's going and where it's at today. So if you're ready to start, I am too. Why don't we start The Coroner's Report. Well, I guess the biggest news that's horror-related in recent memory would be the runaway success that Quiet Place 2 is. Correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, but you did not see the original Quiet Place, did you? I have not. I'm familiar with John Krasinski because when I saw that he was doing a sequel to this movie, because he basically wrote and directed the first one. I think he did this one as well, but it's like... I look at that, it's like, wow, he's come a long way since The Office. <laughs> I, it's kind of crazy because we'll talk about uh, later on, we'll talk about another horror movie for this year. Seems like all the comedy guys are moving into horror now. Jordan Peele and John Krasinski, and we will talk about Danny McBride later. So Chris Rock. What is you know? it? Chris Rock? Yeah, exactly. There's a... <laughs> Wow, a lot of comedy guys moving into horror. I don't know why that is, but maybe that maybe refer back to our statements on on 2020 and the year that was, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, and and there does seem to kind of be a horror that has comedy elements in it. Sure, sure. But I've always thought you would like the first Quiet Place. Uh, of course, it was released in 2018. Was really big hit. It's a good old fashioned creature feature, which I, I, I know the kind of horror you like and you don't like, Seth. And I deck. Creature Features definitely falls into the category of you like. Absolutely, yeah. It goes all the way back to the days of Sven or whatever weekend horror mm-hmm. stuff where they'd show the Dracula or the Mummy movies. Right, exactly. We know when we've talked kaiju here on Examining the Dead, you're kind of one of my go-to guys because you, you're more knowledgeable in kaiju than I am. 
Mm-hmm. So this is a strange movie, though. This was a movie that actually had its world premiere in New York City all the way back in 20 on March 8th. And I don't think I have to tell anybody listening or anybody that hasn't been under a rock for the last two years what happened. Oh, about a week later <laughs> in March of 2020, everything got shut down. Yeah. And it, it was about a know, week after I came home from C2E2, I think, was when everything hit the fan. And right. Because there were people in my area going, Okay, well, we're about 10 days removed from C2E2, and uh, we're still alive. The world has just, <laughs> yeah. just caught on fucking fire. That's kind of yeah. what happened, isn't it? <laughs> Figuratively, not literally. But anyway, you can probably explain this better than I can, having worked in a movie theater at one time in your life. It is not unusual for a major studio production like this to have what, quote-unquote, a world premiere in a big city like Chicago or New York or L.A. or London – where they show the film and they have all the stars and, and people involved in it there. It's almost like a red carpet type affair. But then it is not wide released to a bunch of theaters and screens till a couple of weeks later, correct? Right. That's that's not at all unusual. It's also where some of the movie reviewers will they'll get the sneak peek there. Sure. And, and Quiet Place 2 was one of those movies. They had this world premiere on March 8th. And then, holy cow. Was that a little flying plane or something? <laughs> School bus driving by, which, why is there a school bus driving by in, in mid-June? Wow. Maybe it is the end of the world, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know. <laughs> but look, um, look for a found footage film to take place in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it got delayed, and it wasn't actually wide released till three weeks ago on May 29th. Since then, in just three weeks, it's close to $200 million gross on a $61 million budget. So I think it's safe to say it's a success, don't you think? That is a hit in anybody's book. Sure, sure. And it's unusual for horror movies to make that kind of money, period. But to make that kind of money with such a screwed up, messed up release, is, is that's fucking outstanding, dude. I, right. I would like that kind of return on my investment. How about you? <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and the thing is about horror, and we'll talk about it more when we get into the found footage stuff, I always figured horror was so popular for filmmakers because you can make a decent horror film on a pretty modest budget. Now, granted, $60 sure. million does not change, but there are tons of other movies that cost a whole lot more than $60 million to make. And so the room for the room the margin for error on your return on investment is much smaller. Exactly, yeah, especially if you yeah. can do the clever uh, filming things like, like what were done in some of those old-school horrors where you see what the creature is seeing but not the person. You know, you right, see the person running point, away. Point, point, you know? POV shot types. Of course, John Carpenter kind of start, started making really popular. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but I think, heck, it was so successful the opening weekend, they already did announced they were going to do a 4K Ultra Blu-ray release, which I, I'm figuring, what, probably around Halloween, you figure? That would put it about right, because I think ever since, I want to say Sixth Sense, it seemed to be a big time for horror movies to come out in the summer. Uh, unfortunately, some of the Friday the 13th were moving that way, but that kind of makes sense. They are based on summer camp. Yeah, yeah, and and I was going to say, uh, just because of the recording of this uh, around the right weekend, June 13th, in the lore of Friday the 13th, is Jason's birthday. That's why that it was is, originally that called Friday the 13th. That's correct. So if Jason Voorhees were still around, he'd be 75 years old as of this recording. As we're recording, his birthday would have been yesterday, correct? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's also broken some records. It is the most successful movie to be released during the pandemic, and it was the first film to be released post-pandemic to top the 100 million mark. Now, obviously, lots of movies are going to break that this year. 
We talked about that on Geekville proper with like Black Widow. I think it's obvious that's going to break that. Oh, yeah. But you can't take it away from Quiet Place 2. It's still the first. That's nothing to seize at, as they would say. So are you ever going to get around to watching either one of these, you think? Oh, sure. Sure. I'm not going to fire them up as soon as I'm done editing this. But yeah, probably by the end of the year, I'll, I'll, I'll have seen them both. But I'll see you rushing out to see slasher flicks. But I, this one, I think there was a better chance. You know. Oh, so. oh yeah. 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 Definitely by the end of the year, I'll, I'll have seen them both. I will probably see it in the theater before it leaves the theaters. So look to a possible review of Quiet Place 2 somewhere down the road. Moving on to an even more recent, if it can be more recent than, than three weeks <laughs> away, well, Conjuring 3, Devil Maybe Do It, that was released on May 26th in the United Kingdom, but then released here on June 4th. Once again, you're, I see to you as the, as the movie guy, that also isn't unusual anymore either, is it, to have films released in other markets before United States? Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah, that, that's definitely not uncommon. It's happened with summer blockbusters all the time. Right. So this one's been around for about two weeks now. And this is one of those films that was part of that deal that Warner Brothers has that it was released simultaneously, theatrically, and on HBO Max. So if you have HBO Max, you can go watch this movie right now for free. Well, not for free, for whatever you're paying for HBO Max. But when you combine all those numbers, though, in that week and a half, two weeks it's been out, it's already grossed $111.8 million, which is also nothing to sneeze at. Right, you know? and, and I would imagine it's getting some measure of income from the HBO Max, because I don't think Warner oh, Brothers sure. would have done something like this without there being some measure of... Right. The uh, membership money going to the movies. Sure. Of course, Conjuring is is obviously three. It's the third part. But it's a broader shared universe for The Conjuring. I've heard it called The Conjuring-verse before. I think probably, in my opinion, after the MCU is probably, financially speaking, one of the most successful shared universes in current film, wouldn't you say? Yeah, the only other thing that I could think would be the the monster verse with the the Godzilla films, right? And there just haven't been as many of those as there is in the Conjuring. Because in the Conjuring, you have mm-hmm. this would be the third in the Conjuring proper. There's the Nun film, the Legend of La Rona, uh, the two Annabelle films. Are there maybe there's three of those? So that's that's a lot of movies, you know, right? In in one shared universe. Yeah. Whereas the Godzilla, counting Kong, there's only four, I think. Exactly. So once again, I don't know if you would like this, Seth, but I do think it is more up your alley because it is loosely based on a true story about real paranormal hunters named the Warrens, who probably were most famous and infamous for their involvement in the original Amityville horror investigation in the late 70s. I will say this, the, the Lorraine and I cannot remember the husband's name, Warren, are played theatrically by Vera Farmiga and what's the actor's name that played Night Owl and Watchmen? Oh gosh! And he and he also played he also played Orm and in, in in the Aquaman movies. I, I know who you mean, but I to forget, the wiki to the wiki, yeah, Robin. To the I, wiki. <laughs> I forget the a- actual actor's name. Oh, what is his name? Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Patrick, Patrick Wilson. Wilson. I knew it was Patrick. I, I want to say Patrick Dempsey, but like that's wrong. That's no. not the right Patrick. <laughs> Patrick Wilson. Uh, of course, he plays the husband. They have really, really good chemistry in these movies, in my opinion. And I think that's part of why they work. I, I don't care how good the story is, how good the special effects are. If your lead actors and actresses don't have chemistry, you're often going to fail. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think it's one of the things that can make 
a good story bad is. And the same thing really with comics. As great as artwork mm. can be in comics, if it's a subpar story, it can only go so far. Consequently, you could have a great story with... Mediocre. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, Mediocre, and it's, yeah. It, it's still not as good. Like, to make our obligatory Doctor Who reference, there, there's plenty of stories that would make for a good novel, like the horror of Fang Rock, which covers pretty much all the horror tropes. And, and the, the book was would seem like a real nail-biter, and then you watch the actual episode, and it's just like, the villain looks like a scoop of ice cream. Prime it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, it would be Doctor Who who didn't have some silliness, right? <laughs> right, right. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but I think that's a, a lot of the reason, because the real-life Warrens are a very controversial characters. They've been pretty soundly debunked as charlatans, but I think Patrick Wilson and, and Vera Farmiga do a really good job at presenting them as true believers. And I think, based on my personal research into the real-life Warrens, they really did believe. They're real believers. A lot of their approach, they were devout Catholics, so a lot of their approach involved a very Catholic, a ca- a Catholic you know, Catholicism take on supernatural, demonic possession and ghosts and things of that nature. So I think they do the, those two actors do a great job you believe that they really love each other. They're a loving couple that does truly believe they're called by God to fight these evil forces and that these evil forces are real. And in a, in a horror movie that is dealing with the supernatural, which is already asking you to really suspend your disbelief, that I think goes along. Mm-hmm. So, but I have not seen it yet. I tried to watch it this weekend and never got around to it. I was too busy watching the Loki premiere and a few other things. But I will. I'll be watching it in the next week, and of course, look for a review of Conjuring Three and a later Examine the Dead episode. I, I am a fan of the Conjuring. I I talk often on this podcast and on my Facebook and on the Examine the Dead Facebook. Not a big fan of current horror. Conjuring is actually a, a uni- shared universe of, of of modern horror that I actually kind of enjoy. Take that for now to completely switch gears, but to stay in the movie, moving out of true horror and supernatural based horror. And we're moving into the sci fi slash comedy with Toxic Avenger. Now, you told me off, Mike, you had never seen the original 1984 cult classic. But as a geek, I would think that you at least know the rudimentary basics of what Toxic Avenger is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The the whole kind of custodian turned into a dark superhero, you might say. Right, right. And that dark superhero is a way I've heard it described as a very good. Of course, this was made by the legendary Troma Films, which, shit. Troma's, I wouldn't even call Troma's shit B-film. I'd call it Z-film. It's that, it's that low rent. It makes Roger Corman look like major studio productions, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they kind of take pride in that. And, yeah, and, totally. and it's not just in horror. They have they have comedy stuff as well. But all's, what, what was it, Danger or Caution, the children at play, where the entire third act is just killing the evil 10-year-old kids? Yeah. It, it's that type of movie. And I, I know we don't there, cuss much on here, but it's just like when you deal with stuff like that, you kind of have to put an explicit tab on it. Yeah, well, it's it, and Lloyd Kaufman, who is the founder and president CEO of Troma Films, he wears that, as, like you said, as a badge honor. I, I can't remember what the venereal disease was he named, but I remember let's watch an interview, and he was basically, he, he only said, what are they asking, like, what are your thoughts on major Hollywood? Fuck them. That was his thought. And he goes, they see Troma Films as, like, I think he called it the HIV or the herpes of the film industry, and he goes, and we're fine with that. We're happy yeah. with that. We, we make movies with women with large naked breasts and bare asses and a lot of graphic over-the-top violence, 
But you know what? The people that like that like that. We know they're going to come see our stuff. He's not wrong. Yeah, I, I've heard stories of trailers being shown and people like walking out right on the trailer in disgust. And when when Troma, you're you're kind of got to get that. And, and let me uh, correct this. I'm the one that doesn't cuss very much. Train cusses as much as he wants, but <laughs> right, right. But if you know our personalities, that's not shocking. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but you know, the, this is slated for a 2022 release. We will give more info once we get it out. But I do find it interesting what we do know about the movie. They're in the pre-production phase. They're casting. They're casting some some decent actors, which is something that Troma would have never done back in the 80s. We've already got Kevin Bacon cast as the villain, and Peter Dinklage also is going to be a star in this movie. I think those are both pretty big actors, don't you? Yeah, definitely in, in most genres. Kevin Bacon and Peter Dinklage, I think, really, they're they're both in that stage in their careers where they're doing what gets approached to them, what, what what's offered mm-hmm. to them. I don't think Kevin Bacon has to worry about doing too many auditions anymore. You know, he, right. And since he has that he's freedom... Turning da- he's turning down script, you're saying. Right, right. <laughs> he, he's he's going to do what, what interests him. And Peter Dinklage, let's face it, Peter Dinklage has never been leading man material. I, I have to say, I don't mean that. Uh, to be demeaning yeah, or anything but, like that, but, 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 but we, we can't. We can't. He's the elephant in the room. He's a little person. Right. I, just, there's not many scripts out there where the where a little person is the is is the leading man, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I, I haven't seen that script yet. I don't know if you have. <laughs> right, but I, I think just the addition of those two boosts the geek credibility that something like this is sure. going to need. And I think people tend to forget, unless they're diehard horror fans like me, Kevin Bacon has a lot of horror. Obviously. One of the most infamous kills in all of the Friday the 13th franchise was Kevin Bacon in the original 1980 with the arrow through the throat. But then also, I, I, I think you said you've seen it before. He was one of the co-leads with Fred Ward in the cult classic Tremors, which is another great B-movie kind of creature feature from the late 80s, early 90s. Then mm-hmm. Fred spawned a franchise. He did Hollow Man, which was a very dark modern take on the Invisible Man, where he played the villain once again. And a few years ago... He was the star of, uh, I think it ran for four seasons, three or four seasons, a really good show that I enjoyed on Fox called The Following, where he plays an FBI agent who hunts down a serial killer. And it has a real Silence of the Lambs kind of vibe. So you look at a, look at a, a back catalog, a filmography of, of that kind of work, that's horror all the way, don't you agree? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so Kevin Bacon, I think he's at that point in his life where you're talking about he turns down roles. I think he realizes his days of Footloose and being a young teen heartthrob leading man are over. Right. But he is still good-looking enough and believable enough he can get the lead in, in something like The Following where he plays this grizzled old cop. Mm-hmm. And we discussed on our last Geekville proper, we're not making any political or social statement, but for whatever reasons, and there's a multitude of them, it's easier for man, men to get leading roles, especially in action-heavy stuff, later in their life than it is for women. Correct, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, yeah, and I think Kevin Bacon probably is one of the guys that falls in the category. We, I think the, the ones that we mentioned before were like Denzel and, uh, and, and Liam Neeson. Well, I think Kevin's kind of in that same category, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. Well, the next movie I want to talk about before we move out of the movie realms and into the, in, into the video game realms is probably the most anticipated horror movie of the year, which is Halloween Kills. This, of course, is going to be the direct sequel to Halloween 2018. It was written and directed by the aforementioned Danny McBride and David Gordon Green, who, like we said, what is this about comedy, guys, moving into horror? But I think we can all agree Halloween 2018 was a runaway hit. And it didn't shock anybody when they announced that they had an idea for a trilogy and Halloween Kill and Halloween Ends were announced a year and a half ago. You weren't shocked, were you? Oh, not at all. Now, of course, this was supposed to come out 
last year, but so <laughs> we've already discussed that with Quiet yeah, Place. Too. Yeah, I can pretty much put it just uh, a cuz, like C U Z, COVID, cuz, COVID. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That cursed family member, cuz, COVID. You don't want that cuz <laughs> coming over. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I would be greatly shocked if this doesn't easily break a hundred million, probably two hundred million, and be big gangbusters at, at the box office. What do you think? Oh, not not at all. And I think it is kind of funny we're talking about two bona fide blockbusters and one that's about to be when we're coming out of a global pandemic and the top genre is horror. We think we'd all be watching well, like I mean, it's it is what it is, man. <laughs> yeah, you think be watching something like Disney with something with like uh, I, I don't know figure skating squirrels or something like that, all singing and dancing. <laughs> True. This I'm, I'm gonna call it audible now on on Seth. Back to Halloween Kill before I call this audible on Seth. I will obviously be seeing that reviewing it. Um, looking very forward to it. I don't think you've seen, still haven't seen uh, Halloween 2018 yet, have you? No, I haven't. But I'll watch it in in prep. Yeah, I'm sure. Look, all our listeners know the original Halloween is my favorite film in any genre of all time. And whether you like Halloween or not, you are just lying to yourself or stupid. If you don't understand the cultural impact that Halloween, the franchise, has had on American pop culture over the last 40 years. I'm sure you agree with that, don't you? Not the least of which is making horror movies out of holidays. Yes. <laughs> yes. Black Christmas predated it, but yeah, it kind of really did kickstart the, the, the date-specific horror. Which, I mean, for if you want to know about like Christmas and, and holidays-themed horror, check out our last podcast with uh, the Reverend Dan Wilson, where we talk about specifically about how broad the christmas themed horror genre is in the in films but anyways i digress but now to call it audible on seth we did put this in our show notes i just think it would be it would be remiss if we didn't mention it well we will, we want to send a shout out to the late great ned Beatty, who unfortunately we lost as we record this yesterday he if you remember our last our, our one of our last episodes we reviewed deliverance when we talked about backwards and ned Beatty was that was his first film he had done stage before that and he had a lot of geek cred beyond just just Deliverance. He he played Otis Berg in in, in the Christopher Reeve Gene Hackman Superman. Uh, mm-hmm. He was awesome as Dean Martin in Back to School, the Roddy Dangerfield comedy of the eighties. I think he he, won, he he was nominated for many awards, won awards. He was just a really really good actor. Yeah, and, and he did comedy as well. And mm-hmm. if you want to see one of his supporting roles, that's straight up drama. You should go see him in. Rudy with uh, Sean Astin because I think he plays like Sean Astin's father or something like he that. He sure does, sure does. Plays I mean, against type. The, 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 the most current, I think, probably well-known role was he was the voice of the of the evil like Care Bear knockoff in Toy Story 3. Remember? Which I, think, I didn't know that. I think he, I think he won like a Juno or some one of the one of the one of the genre type awards for that. So he played a villain. He played a great guy. And to go back to Deliverance and his horror cred, can you imagine your first film? Being cast with the new hot young sex symbol in Hollywood is Burt Reynolds. And John Voight was a real up-and-comer at the time. And it calls for you to be anally raped in the movie. That's mm-hmm. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I hate the fact for all the great work Ned Beatty did, Squeal Like a Pig is almost going to be his legacy, isn't it? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Either that or him lusting after Lonnie Anderson, the stroker ace. Yeah, another great Burt Reynolds movie. <laughs> Obviously, Burt liked working with it because he did two or three movies of Burt. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we want to send a shout out to, to him. I'm pretty sure most of you have heard that he's passed and our condolences to his family and friends. He will be missed. He was a great actor and, and he did a lot of very, very diverse work and definitely did a lot of horror and geek stuff and he will be missed. But anyway, so mm-hmm. we're going to move out of the movies. Rest in peace, 
Mr. Beatty, thank you for your contributions to our entertainment. And we're going to move into the world of video games. I guess the biggest horror-themed video game has been out now for a little bit over a month, and that would be Resident Evil Village, which I think is the ninth installment in that franchise, or seventh maybe. It, I, it know was was May- a, I know there was a seventh because I uh, think they this one takes me when they, when they stopped numbering them and they started going with just the subtitles. Yeah. That's – but it is what it is. But it was released on May 7th. It It's – been fairly well well received by the critics. If you want to pull that up, Seth, that that the, the some of the some of the ratings we saw from Metacritic on it. Yeah, I think it was averaging around eight out of ten. Where yeah, which it was is like between that's pretty universal praise. Don't you agree? Oh yeah, yeah, that comes out to what like a B average. Right, right. I think we when we looked at it, it was like IGN gave it like an eight out of ten. Gamespot gave it a nine out of ten. That's pretty good ratings, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So anybody who's listening to this podcast has probably. Either played a Resident Evil game, probably most definitely seen at least one of the Resident Evil movies, which are loose adaptations of the video. Yeah, here it is here. On the PC, it's like an 84 out of 100. On PS4, it's an 81 out of 100. On PS5, it's an 84 out of 100. On Xbox Series X, it's well, 81 out of 100. So like you said, somewhere in that 81 and 84 out of 100 range, that's pretty good. Financially, it's been a success. They shipped four or three or four million copies in the first four days that's a lot mm-hmm. that's that's crazy dude because that doesn't even take into consideration all the digital downloads that were probably done the opening weekend so i think we can definitely say it's a hit i have not played the game yet um right now i'm finishing up the latest dlc for assassin's creed valhalla but i will get to it eventually some of the critique on this game is i think i think it's, it's across the board in all video games no matter what the genre and we discussed this off mic one of the critiques is that it's moved more away from the survival horror roots of Resident Evil games to a more action RPG oriented with elements of survival horror and puzzle solving in it. Like, I know one of the major critiques was like one of the puzzles that you've got to solve. The solution is literally it's a lot. It's opening a, a locked door. The solution is literally on a piece of paper at your feet when you get to the door. That wouldn't have happened. And you would have really had to think and find clues throughout. To, to, to solve the puzzle. But would you, would you like to share with people your thoughts on part of the reason why you think maybe as if we've had this move in all video games to a more of an amalgam of action versus first-person shooter versus all this stuff, why that might be? You were talking about like the, the, the limitations of systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think at least part of it is, well, first off, I think it's to try to make things more appealing to a wider audience. The idea that well, hey, if you like a puzzle game, well, there's puzzles in here. If you like action, there's some action in it as well. But I also think probably the biggest reason is game engines are so much more complex than they were 20-some years ago with the, I guess the first games around the first generation PlayStation. The games just couldn't get that deep. And I sometimes feel like a a little bit of an age difference or an age shock when I'm seeing people playing games that are re-released on a newer system, uh, something that you have to play with like DOSBox or something that back before right. before modern Windows used to play games in DOS. And there's these people talking about, oh, why don't they fix this and this this whatever? And it was like, because it was an archaic engine that just doesn't take the type of commands that a modern game does. And I think it's a similar thing. The, the games back then, they just couldn't be as complex because of the technology and the engine limitations. So I think that's why you basically have five genres thrown into one game now instead of it focusing on one like in the past right. i think you're very true though in the first the first part of your statement there we've talked about when it's music it is often a matter of 
of widest demographic. That's it's. I, I remember Phil Colin, the guitarist for Def Leppard, has talked at length about their first two albums, which he was not a part of because Pete Willis was a guitarist then, a High and Dry and On Through the Night. They sold about three million copies. But then they get Mutt Lang as their producer, and they go to a more hook-heavy, pop-friendlier sound by retaining the hard rock elements. And all of a sudden, they were opened up to like girls and other demographics they didn't have before. And that was the difference between selling 3 million albums and selling 7 million. So, so I think that's probably true. I can say myself from my wrestling career, the ones that are financially successful, though this, a lot of times they draw hatred from the hardcores of a particular type of entertainment, if you want to be really financially successful, it is you have to go for that broader demographic, you know. Right, right. And we like we talked about on regular Geekville when we were discussing the the, the Snake Eyes GI Joe movie. You said yourself you're going into that movie as a GI Joe fan, realizing this is not the GI Joe of your youth, but it doesn't matter because they realize they got your money already, anyways. Right, right, exactly. All those people writing those hate mail letters, they're paying attention to this stuff anyway. Yeah, the, the people that are hating on these elements of Resident Evil Village. Obviously, they've played the game, which means they bought it, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So <laughs> the money's already spent, I guess, is our point. And, and I think horror, like, like a lot of other niche geek subgenres, have their ardent hardcore fans. But you got to realize a lot of times they're trying to give you enough to make you happy, but they're also going for beyond just you. And I think this is a case, not just in Resident Evil, but I think across video games, the next video game we wanted to talk about, and Seth is going to link a, a video for this in, in the show notes at Geekville Radio Examining the Dead 29, correct? Yes. Will be Diablo 2 Resurrected. I don't think a lot of our older listeners will remember the Diablo game, video games, which I think were, were they first or second gen? I can't, they were first gen, weren't they? I know that they're old enough to back before there was a lot of 3D modeling in these mm-hmm. games, so a lot of the animation was just done in sprites. But it was kind of like that Sims-type thing where you had the overmap and you, you, would, you would just kind of go as it, as it fleshed out. But nowadays, as you'd see in the very impressive trailer, it's all 3D modeling. It's like It can be like 60 frames a second, all that modern stuff, but yet yep. the gameplay it, still looks right. like it's... Uh, from the this isn't a new yeah this isn't a new game diablo 2 was originally released in 20 and 2001 so this is a you know 20 year anniversary it's getting the full remastered hd upgrade which you said your younger brother played this game and he loved it so he's gonna be excited to hear this right i, I would think so yeah I'll, I'll probably text him about it yeah and it's been it's been announced it, it, it's launch date is, is, is september 23rd of this year which is just right in time for halloween and of course diablo for those that don't know Diablo means devil in the Spanish language. That's what the game's really all about. You play a fantasy-based, like Dungeons and Dragons type character who literally goes to hell to fight demons. That's about as horror as it gets, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but Seth is going to link a website that will give you the, the look at the launch trailer, and it looks like there's some gameplay. There is some gameplay footage in this trailer because we watched it right before we started recording. And you you were kind of impressed. <laughs> I think one of the first things you said was, "Yeah, we didn't see that back in 2001." <laughs> right. But anyway, I, I look forward to that. I enjoyed the Diablo games back in the day, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that. I, I think it's it's also tapping into that nostalgia. And right or wrong, nostalgia always sells, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, there, there's always going to be that measure of audience for the stuff that kind of retells childhoods or brings people back to their childhood. Sure, sure. It always sells to a certain demographic. But anyway, well, that's it. We've got for for the quarters report. For this, examining the dead. So we're going to take a break and sell, sell, try to sell you a few things. And when we come back, 
We're going to jump into the gruesome twosome and look at two of what I think are better found footage of the last 20 years. So go ahead and pay the bills, Seth, and we'll be right back. Are you looking for a gaming-themed podcast? Then check out You Just Got Fragged. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of gaming enthusiasts as they discuss news and accomplishments in the gaming world and, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFragged.com, part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. It's time for the gruesome twosome. Well, don't say you haven't been warned, Freaky Darlings. We told you already what we're going to review. We're going to really jump into found footage. And we're going to start out with a movie I'm almost sure that everybody that listens to this podcast has seen at least once, no matter what their opinions are of it. Even Seth has seen this movie. And that is probably the most famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, found footage movie of all time, and that would be the original Blair Witch Project from 1999. Were you working in a movie theater at this point, Seth, or had you left the movie theater at that point? Oh, indeed. Uh, Yeah, that was right at the heart of my movie theater days, and I always saw it for what I thought it was, which was just a creative way to tell a story. Because there's always that measure of uh, genre appeal when you have something that can be that tale, whether it's, well, we never saw them again, and all we found was his diary or something like that. It's that type of vibe that I think the found footage stuff uh, does. And I remember everybody trying to explain the ending, what they thought happened. Well, this is what they really meant. And uh, I just, the the creators themselves, they purposely made the ending to be ambiguous. There was no definitive ending to it, because otherwise, what's the point of all the appeal of the found footage if it gives you an ending to the story. I think that's that's the idea. That's the whole right. thing is... Draw your own conclusion is kind of the whole point. Right, right. The, the, the true appeal or the true scare, you might say, is not actually what happened. Because if what happened, then there's a finality. And the whole point was to keep that finality from being there. Yeah, and I think you're right that when you go back to what you said about how this was this interesting way to tell a story... I know things predated it that were quote unquote found footage, and we were going to go much more into depth than that in the next section. But uh, you know, into the crystal, we look into the crystal ball. But the way it was filmed with the unknown actors, with that shaky cam, which I understand can bother some people, especially if they kind of have queasy stomachs. But it really did lend to this credibility of draw your own conclusion, like you said. And I would also say that the, the found footage stuff. I remember even though I was working in a theater at the time, I'm like, well, I can see why they're releasing this in theaters because you have to pay to see it. But to me, it's much more believable and thus much scarier when you watch it on TV at home. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're looking at TV footage or, or home footage on a movie screen, it just it, it takes me out of the element. That's just me. Sure. But I think we can agree, and you can speak to this directly, working at a theater when it was released. The pop culture sensation it was and the furor that it created was very real, was it not? Oh, yeah, because there were people that they thought it was real. And we'll we'll talk more when we get to In the Crystal Ball about things that people thought was real when the whole point mm-hmm. is it's easy to fool them into thinking it's mm-hmm. real in a format like yeah. this. Right, and we, we've talked about before. I think what makes Blair Witch Project the original so important and why I like it so much really has nothing to do with the quality of the film. Look, it's a, it, it's an interesting ghost story. They did a good job at creating this 
backstory and lore for the for the for the Blair Witch with the Rustin Parr elements and the history of the town of Blair and and Burkittsville and all this stuff, right? They did a really good job with all that. But that's to me creative people, which you would expect screenwriters to be creative, taking old ghost stories they'd heard around the campfires kids and just putting their own spin on them. That's kind of all they did. What really separated this, and we've talked about this before on Examining the Dead multiple times and on Geekville proper, it was the marketing campaign they did. How they got sci-fi channel long before it was what we know sci-fi to be today to make an original documentary that was released before the movie came out to explain the history. It's called The Curse of the Blue Witch. So they're lending this credence to... Oh, I'm watching a documentary on cable television. This I've never heard of Blair Witch. I've heard of it now. You're thinking it's it's like, and I really got into that myself. I I bought uh, some of the material that was per- peripheral to it that was released in conjunction with it to give it this feeling of authenticity. But I think what really separated them and where the filmmakers of Blair Witch stepped beyond just horror movies was it was really the first form of any type of entertainment, music, movies, television, to understand the power of the internet and viral marketing. Yeah, because you know, if you're if you're listening to this in the year of our Lord 2021 and you're like the age of 25 or under, and I'm, I'm not talking down to you or anything like that, I'm just kind of saying how it is, you probably aren't firsthand familiar to a world without broadband internet being pretty readily available. In those mm-hmm. days, in 1999, a lot of people were still on dial-up. There still was a lot of stuff that was done through the conventional means of TV, radio, and all that type of stuff. So Print. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. the whole type of viral marketing where you could put something up on the internet and make it look like uh, somebody's blog before or, the term was even like, widely like, used. Like, like the official website of a fictional university. Exactly. Yeah, that, that type of thing. That's how viral marketing was done in the late 90s, early 2000s. Now, just about anybody that has a couple bucks can put up a, a website that they call Geekville Radio. I'm sorry. Put up a website <laughs> and make it whatever they want. I think you get what I'm being a little self-deprecating. Yeah, but you know. but well, part of the thing, too, is I don't think people understand, uh, unless they, like you said, unless they're of a certain age, the Internet was truly the Wild West back then, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Right. You, it was harder they, to. They, they very much sanitized what, what what you can access on the internet, and mm-hmm. we can get into those debates at another time on another podcast. Yeah, but yeah, I, it was I it was it was fucking amazing what you could find on the internet back in those days. Well, you were like, right. where in the hell did this shit come from? Right, right. <laughs> it was and bizarre to say the least. Because things like Wikipedia didn't exist, so I guess the best way I can put it is it could be much more difficult to figure out or to police what was true and what wasn't because mm-hmm. nobody actually knew as a whole there there, there was no mm-hmm. place that could d- distinctively say this is true this is false they left it to people to figure it out themselves right i'm reminded a lot of where the internet was in that era probably what it was like when television first became a thing in the 50s was you had a, a, an older generation that oh they saw it on tv so it had to be real right and that, believe me, as a pro wrestler, I have a pretty intimate knowledge and understanding of, of how that group psychosis works, <laughs> mm-hmm. group psychology. This is the same thing illusionists were doing and, and carnival people were doing back before television. And, you know, you still have that problem today, and even though the Internet's been around and improved over the last 20 years. Oh, I read it on the Internet. I saw the Internet has to be real, correct? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's one of the things I can relate to because my dad back in the day, 
was the one that originally turned me on to wrestling being predetermined. And right. it wasn't because of anything he had seen or read. He just noticed that, hey, Certain you know, inconsistencies. <laughs> how one guy was playing the good guy, one guy was playing the bad guy. Now, granted, my dad also had to be told that this a spinal tap was fake and wasn't mm-hmm. an actual documentary. But that's I think it's kind of funny how Spinal Tap was kind of the pro wrestling of rock documentaries. Sure, <laughs> but but I, I, sure. you know, but that's the, that that was my my upbringing, so to speak. Sure, and I I think that that well the Spinal Tap thing. Part of anybody who's successful, and I think the guys who did Blair Witch are a great example of that. Is there's just enough truth in it, or gray, you know, shades of gray, that you can make people. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, remember. Steven Tyler of Aerosmith famously has been quoted as saying when he watched Final Tap the first time, he was like, there were parts of that that were so close to real life, I cried. Yeah. So here's a real-life rock star from that era who knows it's not a real movie and knows Final Tap's not a real band, but he's actually emotionally moved because they were so close to what reality was for those people, you know? (laughs) But I think one of the things that made Blair Witch work is that it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, the, the Daniel Sanchez, who was one of the writers and directors. He said their whole goal when they were writing the screenplay was to write what sounded like a viable urban legend that any of us had heard. The way he, I think, I'm trying to remember the exact wording. He, I tried to write a story. We tried to write a story that was, oh, yeah, this happened to my ex-girlfriend's cousin's brother three towns over. And I definitely think it kind of had that vibe, didn't it? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, they loosely based elements of it on the on the Bell Witch, which is a real haunting uh, from the eighteen hundreds in Tennessee. You know, and I think the thing is, we could we could sit here and we could break down scene for scene Blair Witch in this review, but I think that's stupid because everybody's seen it. I think the real important thing that comes out of Blair Witch is the marketing and the success on a film that they made for I think like twenty five or thirty five thousand dollars and had well over a hundred million dollars in, in return. You can see why it launched what is is still going today a huge craze in the found footage genre. And I, for those that don't know that weren't around, we both can testify to the fact that the furor about this film was very real when it came mm-hmm. out. And I had a lot of friends who were intelligent, educated people who it took a lot of convincing to show them no, this was just a movie. Agreed? Yeah, yeah, because there were people who. They thought it was real, and they thought it was, oh, this is so amazing. And like I said at the top of the review, I just thought it was a creative way to tell a story on a low budget. So then we fast forward from there to 2017. And Seth, if you'll go ahead and wave the spoiler tag Mm -hmm. uh, now, because I I know both of us are going to get heavy into spoilers on this review, so let's go ahead and do that. If you haven't seen The Blackwell Ghost, let me tell you right now before you go away for a while, it is available for free. The first one, right now, as we speak, on Amazon Prime. And it's only an hour long, so you're already getting Amazon Prime, and you got an hour of free time you want to kill. So now if you'll go ahead and wave the spoiler tag, Seth. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler hole has been breached. Spoiler hole has been breached. Well, well, Blackwell Ghost. The Blackwell Ghost. Very interesting. It was a film that I actually came across a few weeks ago, and... I was kind of in the mood for a true crime documentary. So that is actually what I put in the parameters of the search engine. And this popped up. And remember that. That's important. It popped up, not in a horror movie. Like if you were to do a search for Blair Witch on any streaming service, it's going to pop up in the horror section. 
This popped up in the documentary section, and I was intrigued, and I watched it, and I said, that's not bad. That's very well done. I don't think it was real, right. but I think it was brilliant marketing to get Amazon to list it and present it as a, as a real-life documentary. And then I noticed that there were four others, Black Will Goes 2, Black Will Goes 3, and each one of them would rent for like $3. But I spent the $16 total to watch the other four, which you did not say. You only watched the first one. Right, right. I, I, I only had, yeah, I only saw the first one. Part of why I, I realized, it, in my opinion, wasn't real from the get-go was the, the, the main character, the guy, the documentarian making the film, was a guy that was not unknown to me as a horror fan. His name is Turner Clay. He's a filmmaker based out of out of Kentucky who's made some low-budget, independent zombie movies. One of my favorite is one that he did from 2010 called State of Emergency. And I was also familiar with another found footage movie he had done called The Phoenix Tapes 97, which he also starred in. And he plays a member of a group of, of buddies who go out, out in the desert outside Phoenix. And then it's a typical found footage. They find their film and then edit it together for release as a documentary. They're supposedly abducted by aliens. So I, being familiar with the man, realized this is probably just a very clever way of telling a story. But the premise is he, he admits to all this at the beginning of the film, that he is, a, he is an independent horror film maker who specializes in low budget zombie movies but that he had seen a, a purported real ghost captured on film on youtube and it fascinated him and it, and he needed a break from the zombie genre so he thought about doing a documentary trying to with the whole goal of capturing a real ghost on. and that falls through and he kind of goes away from it and makes another zombie film when he's contacted by a guy said hey i saw your post on youtube about how you want to get into that my house is haunted you want to come up here and investigate and that's kind of the whole crux of the movie mm -hmm. and from that point on like you said it really hits all checks all the boxes on the tropes right 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 you hear like the bump in the night sounds and the the owner would have guests say why are you going up and down the stairs and he's like i wasn't going up and down the stairs that type of stuff right and then it, it, he gives once more i think another trope he puts in there the typical dark history of the house we find out that both his parents died tragically in that house in the last several years. And then he did the big reveal about halfway through the film when you go downstairs and there's literally a manhole cover in this creepy looking basement. And he's like telling the, the filmmaker, you've never seen anything like this before, have you? What is it? Well, this used to be the well for the well water. Oh, yeah. And by the way, some owners of this house back in the 30s was an old lady and she was found guilty of killing seven local kids and chopping their bodies up and dumping them down this hole to hide the bodies. So. Which, which as soon as I heard that when watching the movie, I'm like, okay, I think that's a Blair Witch reference because the original Blair Witch, <laughs> yes. the background was about the murder of seven kids. Right. In the Blair Witch, that was the most recent incarnation until the filmmakers in 99 have been the rest of par stuff in the 40s, right? Mm -hmm. So now you've got, like you said, all the tropes of a haunted house movie, but just being presented as this filmmaker setting up cameras everywhere. And he keeps repeating over time. I'm not an expert. I'm not a paranormal investigator. I'm just a filmmaker. And you, like you said, you start getting all the bump in the nights and the, and, and there's a couple of times where you see ghostly like figures after some things have moved on their own, walk across the camera and all these tricks they're using. They could be real paranormal, but they're also age old special effects that require little to no money to pull off. Even for like a handheld GoPro. Right. Like you said, all you do is have somebody just off camera with the right camera angle takes a, a, a verbal cue from the guy. And he, 
opens the door with nobody there to open it. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, or like there's a scene where a chandelier moves on its own in the dining room. I had suggested it's quite possible they actually had a, another person upstairs going through the floorboard in the room over that and was just physically moving the chandelier. But they're right. off. They're not in frame and they're not being filmed because they're upstairs. You don't know. Right. You know? Or or since it's at night and you got the night vision, which kind of clouds the the footage anyway, you could use fishing wire countless a million, ways. You millions know, of tricks. And literally smoke and mirrors. That is what illusionists used back in the day. Smoke to obfuscate your view and literally force perspectives and, and projections onto mirrors to create ghostly. It's called a pepper box effect. It's what they use. Disney uses that to this day to create the dancing ghosts and the famous ballroom scenes in their Haunted Mansion attractions. So it, it wouldn't be hard or expensive to pull off. Don't you agree? Correct. Yeah. But I think giving this this dark lore and all this, and it has the another reason why I I feel it's not real is it it's too convenient that each night that he's staying in the house the the paranormal activity escalates even more and more. Don't you agree? Right. Again, it goes back to the tropes. It's it's telling the story. To me, the 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 most obvious part as far as it following a story is the first thing he does is he lays down this ball on a table. It's like, well, supposedly there's kids. Here's a ball. What do kids like to do? Which is logical. Makes sense, actually. Right. right. Uh, But they make it a point the ball doesn't move. The ball doesn't move. And then at the end of the third night, the guy finds the ball on the well cover in the basement. And And he has done a very effective job at building suspense and tension throughout the movie. And you've kind of forgotten about the ball. But lead-ups to this, as we forgot to mention, his wife actually comes up and stays his three-day weekend in the house that the owner is going to let him because the owner's out of town on business, I think was what, what the excuse why he wasn't there. Right. When that right. The excuse he gave. Yeah. And once again, I think that guy, the actor that they got to play Roger or whatever his name was, the house owner, he was very believable. You yeah, know? He, he looked he like was, a normal person. And of course he, he is like credited an, in IMDb as an actor. So, right. And he, he was very believable as a guy who lived in a haunted house who just ex- had come to accept the fact he lived in a haunted house. He was very believable. And, right. but they, they his wife goes with them, and each night, like we said, there's escalating tension where you've kind of forgotten about this ball. But there's a scene where he goes downstairs in the basement during the day to see what's really in the well. And they have a guy has a pair of channel lock pliers jammed into the, the manhole cover. To and he tells him, "Well, I, I do that because it, it, it's so heavy. If I didn't have it in there, it'd be almost impossible to get it off." And he 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 does a very unscientific which can be easily faked, dropping that, that string down there. Just, oh, wow, this, this well is like 60 feet deep. It's not even, a weighted, not even a weighted line, right? But he's very convincing in, in how he's telling you. Right. And they're establishing and establishing. And then when you finally get to the great climax where you've forgotten about the ball, you notice before he notices the ball's gone off the coffee table. And the door to the basement keeps opening every night on its own. And the lights go out. So now he's saying – Oh, all my cameras were powered. I'm not going to get anything on film. Only a few of them have battery backup. And he takes a handheld battery-operated camera to go downstairs to check on the breaker box because he looks out the window of the bedroom and the power goes out and the neighbors across the street, their porch light's on. So he's thinking it's just the breaker box in their house. And, of course, this requires him to go down in the creepy basement where the well is. The well that, that when he checked it for... Earlier, the day before, he by accident dropped the lid down and forgot to put the pliers back. And he goes down, and 
great job, I thought, at this point of using the force perspective of the only light he has is this camera, this night vision camera he's using. And you see him reach out, like you were talking about earlier, that Michael Myers point of point of view camera shot of his hand reaching out and turning the 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 hitting the, the breaker. And then as he turns to leave, well, holy shit, the pliers are back in the manhole cover and the ball's on top of it. Right. Right. And he freaks out and he runs and you think it's over, but it's not. He goes another layer to where when he gets back to his home in Kentucky, he shows you what he didn't catch at first. Because as he was quickly turning with that camera with the lens out in his hand, he stopped. He freeze frames. There's a ghostly figure standing there like like a woman in white. You know, that's the opinion of the dun 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 that moment right you know <laughs> right it, it's the reveal and the, the reason why I, I keep bringing up the ball uh, to kind of go with the trope thing it, it's the explanation in theater that the, the gun that gets placed in the first act goes off in the th- that's kind right. of with the, the, right. the ball in this case is is the gun although it doesn't actually shoot anybody yeah but yeah yeah you're right you're exactly right you you don't introduce certain elements in, in entertainment without their payoff at the end. It's like you and me like talk about all the time. It's the proverbial carrot dangling on a stick, right? Exactly. It's like you know as soon as he puts that ball down early in the film, there's going to be some significance to that ball later on. Right. You know, Kind of the punchline to that one of the earnest movies. And there on the on the rearview mirror was the hook. That, that yeah, yeah. punchline. Same thing. I think, And I, I feel that the same thing with the pliers being in the – because they make a big point to show you, oh, crap, I dropped the lid down and forgot to put the pliers back. It's it's all storytelling. So I personally I knew right away it wasn't real. The general consensus is it isn't real. But as soon as I got done watching it, I got online and realized, oh my gosh, there this film's only been out for three years. It's already got four sequels that he's direct he's only releasing directly to Amazon. And it, it had a furor that I hadn't seen since ninety nine in the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, yeah, because you do a search for Blackwell Ghost. And I already came across like three or four blogs of people disproving it, which again kind of goes back to, well, they must have been drawn into it enough to investigate it mm-hmm. uh, if they were trying to f- figure if it was real or not. Turner Clay is laughing all the way to the bank because they're talking about, they're very passionate about, don't trust this guy. He's a liar. It's fake. He's already got your money. What does he care? You watch the damn thing, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of those blogs, they will, it's obvious they did a lot of time and research into breaking down and showing why it's fake. Mm-hmm. Got him. <laughs> uh, yeah, n- not not the least of which I noticed when I was watching that supposedly when he goes back to the house two weeks later, he's wearing the same clothes as when he left. Right. But whether that was intentional or not, I, I don't know. But I mean, that's I, continuity gaff. That was the old, you know, to use the old Hollywood term, the script girl wasn't really on set that day, right? <laughs> right, right. But I, I will say this, that I was intrigued enough by it that I'm interested in watching the other four installments now. Sure, sure. That's the thing is that. I, I really think one of the biggest reasons that it's it, it's created this furor is well, it's twofold. One, like I said, he got he has it listed as a document. That right there, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the Blair Witch and the the burgeoning information hub that the internet is. People still really don't fully understand how the internet works, and they Facebook, like you said, and Twitter stuff weren't around in '99. Well, it is now. So he has used a group on Facebook for the Blackwell Ghost as a way to drum up interest about these further movies. The way he does it, how he puts, oh, I, I guess got this picture. Does it, can anybody help me out? It might help me in the next movie. That's brilliant, dude. Mm-hmm. And then he's been very smart. If you go to IMDb, if you go to Wikipedia, there's very little 
did nothing about him, which makes it even more ambiguous, you know? Right. And, so, and also, if you look up the definition of the term documentary, a lot of times what you'll see is a consisting of documents contained or certified in writing. Now, mm-hmm. basically what I'm getting at is you can do a documentary of something that's fake and still call it a documentary. It's just, that might be stretching it a little bit, but I think you get what I'm saying. Sure, it was sure, done sure. is kind of recording the steps taken to do this. So I think you can still make a fake story, quote unquote, and still specify it as a documentary based on the way you create the film. But right there, you already answered the question I was going to ask you. It piqued your interest enough that you said you might be willing to be interested to pay a little bit of money to rent the other ones and see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think, ladies and gentlemen, I would strongly urge... Uh, any of you that like that type of you know paranormal investigation, found footage, mockumentary, documentary, whatever, check it out. Like I said, it's only an hour long and it's free. And if and it, and if it piques your interest, it's not that expensive to rent the other ones. And then you can get online and debate whether you think it's real or not. I think it was very clever marketing. I think it is just the way he marketed it, the way he presented it, I think is the best I've seen since 99 and Blair Witch. This is why I wanted to juxtapose those two films against each other in this gruesome twosome. So It's a fair comparison, definitely. Uh, and and when we get in the next segment, we, we're going to talk about the history of found footage from their, its roots and lit- literature all the way to the Blackwell Ghost. We will show you that there have been a lot of found footage and, 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 and mockumentary, pseudo-documentaries between Blair Witch and Blackwell Ghost that maybe weren't as successful at, at fooling people and why I say it's the next step in the evolution of that. But I think that's an agreement on both Blair Witch and Blackwell Ghost. If nothing else, for for historical value and just de, de, cannon fodder for debate, they're a thumbs up. Absolutely. All right, well... There we go, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to move on, pay a few more bills, and when we come back, we will look into that crystal ball. And we'll look very, very deeply at the history of found footage and found footage-like genre in all mediums of entertainment. So we'll be right back. Attention all time lords and ladies. This message is being sent by Lady President Romana and the High Council of Gallifrey. Heatville Radio presents Examining the Doctor. Join Mark and Seth as they bring their signature blend of knowledge and humor about everybody's favorite Time Lord, The Doctor. From Hartnell to Whitaker, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for favorite and not-so-favorite Doctor Who stories. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeekGoRadio.com, or wherever podcasts can be found. And now... A look into the crystal ball. Well, as we do take a long look into that crystal ball, we're going to look at the entire history of found footage and mockumentaries and pseudo-documentaries. And I think most people would assume that this is a fairly new genre that originally started with Blair Witch. And then there are those, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Then I think there are those that are big horror movie fans that would say, well, no, no, no. Cannibal Holocaust came out in 1980, and it was really the first found footage. But I think if you really start diving into the history of, of this particular style of entertaining people, it goes way, way back, even before movies were invented. For those of us that went to Sunday school, we're familiar with the term epistle. Of course, an epistle is just a letter. 
when you hear about like the book of Second Thessalonians, well, the title page for that book in the New Testament is just literally the the second epistle of Paul to the people of Thessalonia. It's a letter he wrote to them. And uh, those that don't know, and I think most of our listeners do know, one of my college degrees is English composition. One of the forms that you can have that is often employed in fiction writing is called epistolary, with the root being epistle. Two of the most famous works ever in horror were actually epistolary forms of novels. That would be the original Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker's Dracula. They are presented, if you read them, as diary and journal entries and letters and newspaper clippings by characters in the novels, Victor Frankenstein, Jonathan Harker, Abraham Van Helsing, that kind of stuff. And so you go back that far and you are seeing Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker trying to, I don't want to say fool the audience, but suspend their disbelief. Did this really happen? I don't know. Are you familiar at all with either of those? Have you ever read the novels of either of those? I'm sure you've seen movie versions, obviously. Right, right. I I haven't read them from beginning to end, but yeah, I I, I am aware that Frankenstein was essentially was done up kind of more journal like than uh, exactly than than done like narrating in the third person like most novels are today. Right, exactly. And so when you look at how these were done, and with writing and novels and pamphlets being the main form of entertainment in that era, much like movies and television is today. You can see how people could read this and not know the background and go, oh, my goodness, this really happened. It was the what I think the, the true foundation of, of the concept behind found footage. And this is even carried on into the 1920s. Call of Cthulhu, which is probably H.P. Lovecraft's most well-known work. It was epistolary, too. It was journal entries. So I think that the concept of found footage or the idea of presenting things in a way that you can easily suspend disbelief because let's be obvious, these are all dealing with supernatural, fantastical ideas and concepts. This is a way to get people to kind of buy them. Oh, this might have really happened. So I think the next major medium form that we saw after writing would be radio. Obviously, movies existed, but radio was the go-to everyday form of entertainment and way that individuals gathered information. And, and I think the, the story of Orson Welles' broadcast of War of the Worlds, and was it 1933, I think it was, or 38? I think, I think it was 38. And, and I th- of course, for the, those that know, and we're talking about suspending disbelief, Orson Welles, who went on to be a filmmaker as well, he produced a radio take on the H.G. Wells classic War of the Worlds, but did it like it was a radio broadcast. Like a and, news broadcast almost. Right. And, and and so there were people that heard it. Maybe they came in late or something like that and thought it was real and thought aliens were mm. invading so much so that as the sun was setting, how you a lot of evenings when you watch the sunset, just when it dips below the horizon, the uh, sky gets red. And you know, they call clouds. It, they and call such. that the, the gloaming is is the actual term for that. But I right. digress. <laughs> so as they're hearing this news report of New York burning in flames due to alien invasion, and they look out and they see the red sky, they would think, that, the, "Oh my gosh, oh, that's you know. oh shit, the world's really on fire!" <laughs> <laughs> right. And the thing, my understanding is, 
Orson Welles was not trying to fool anybody. There were multiple commercial breaks during the broadcast, which was, I think, syndicated nationwide, wasn't it? Or, or, right. or a lot of, across a lot of the nation. That during the commercial breaks, the radio stations would say, this is for entertainment purposes. This isn't really happening. But like you said, somebody comes in from work in the fields or from drive home from their job or whatever. They click on the radio in the middle of it, and it sounds just like your typical news broadcast on the radio. They didn't hear the disclaimer during the commercial break. So I get it, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, if I recall correctly, in, in actuality, the number of people that actually believed it at the time was actually pretty small. But that number was still enough to uh, cause a stir. Oh, yeah. And I think that's probably the first spoken me where there was, I don't want to say mass hysteria, because like you said, it was actually the numbers were smaller than what, but it was still large enough that I think it qualified as a large hysteria over something that where people essentially got the wool pulled over their eyes mm-hmm. about a science fiction, paranormal type of, of event happening. And obviously Orson Welles would go on to, to make Citizen Kane, which a lot of movie critics and historians consider the greatest film ever made. I still think War of the Worlds, that made him. Don't you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's really what put him on the map, because I think this was before he was doing... Actually, this was after The Shadow, I think. But it, but yeah, it was before films became his main body of work. Right. And we're now seeing this concept of blurring those lines, making something that could seem possible to get the people to suspend their disbelief, has moved on to the newest form, news medium, which is radio. And then, of course, films would come later on and become even more important with, than, than radio. And I think there's an element to this ideology in what they, we, they would call these old health films. I mean, one of the most infamous probably being Reefer Madness, which are the 40s and 50s, where, let's be honest, those movies were really savvy businessmen, filmmakers, figuring out a way to get around the censors to show nudity and drug use on film. But painting them as these are documentaries of uh, warning you of the evils of premarital sex and, and, and marijuana use and stuff, and they were sensational and tentilating in, in, their, in their depiction of and presentation on film of this lurid, taboo type of activities. And all it took was them to have a guy put on a pair of glasses and, and a lab coat to look smart and say on the camera, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And people bought them as, oh, these are health movies. I, I, do you see why I made the connection? Is like that kind of thing is kind of the next, the next step in this evolution of kind of fooling people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know about what's about Reefer Madness, but obviously you watch it now and you laugh because we know so much more about marijuana use. It was truly presented as a health film. You could tack my head to the carpet right now and beat me over, over the fucking skull with a sledgehammer, and I'm not going to believe no matter how hard you try to convince me that the filmmakers were not just trying to make a buck on Reefer Madness. They, they had no compunction about altruism and convincing people that marijuana was bad. Right, or that it was even propaganda mm-hmm. or, or something like that. It, no, I think it, it was, was to just, make a buck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was to make a buck. But And I think we could go off on a whole other tangent about how those films kind of spawned the exploitation films of the 60s and 70s. And I would say the next evolution in found footage mockumentary documentary would be part of the exploitation craze started in the 60s and that would be what were called mondo film and mondo films much like giallo much like spaghetti westerns came from italy and mondo is the italian word for world and one of the first i think probably was the first and most famous to actually use mondo in the title was from 1963 and it was called mondo cane which the english 
translation means a dog's world. Kane meaning like like canine and Mondo meaning world. And it was uh, documentary type footage of a dog's life and some lurid things like dogs fucking dogs mating two dogs fighting to the death a dog getting rabies and then dying very lurid once again though can get around some of the censorship and, and ratings because it's being presented as a documentary and these the mondo films became so popular in the exploitation era and the grindhouse era that they became their own subgenre, much in the same vein as black exploitation or kung fu you know chop sake movies spaghetti westerns they became their own subgenre of the exploitation. And like a lot of other exploitation films, they would often cross-pollinate with other subgenres. Like I think Jean Vadim, the guy who's probably most well-known for making uh, Barbarella, which was obviously just softcore porn, he combined Mondo with softcore. And I think he did one, uh, I can't remember, it was something Mondo is French because he's a French filmmaker. But it was essentially the day in the life of a call girl. You know what I'm saying? So you can see how this is, once again, lurid, taboo subject matter. And it's just a way to get around to show good-looking women showing their breaths, their tits and their asses off on film, right? <laughs> yeah, and what's funny about Barbarella is it's tame by today's standards. Oh, it's tame by today's standards. Yeah, it's not even PG-13 by today's standards, I would think. I, yeah, yeah, and it's sad because the machine is the Orgasmatron, which is also a great song by Motorhead, but I digress. But I think that all the stuff we're talking about, this predates me and Seth. The next phase, I think, and found footage come right off of the, the, the coattails of Mondo films. And this is getting into the era that directly affected our childhood. And this would be the Faces of Death films and films of that ilk. What do you remember about the furor over the Faces of Death films when you were a kid? Well, I first remember hearing about them. I think I was in junior high. But yeah, it would have been sometime mm -hmm. in the 80s. And the whole thing is the other kids, they swore up and down that Faces of Death was real and that they, these mm -hmm. were actual documented people that, that died and mm -hmm. in these very gruesome ways. And even as a kid, I had my doubts because, mm. quite frankly, when you're talking about selling footage of people being horrifically killed in in real life that's somebody's brother that's somebody's wife that's yeah and so even as a kid you're having the same questions i do like how in the hell did they get approval to to, to, to put this on a movie exactly because because somebody you're, in their family is going to say is, it's essentially you know, a snuff film right right you, you'd be making money off of somebody else's misfortune and even in junior high i was like how do they do that so right and and for those who don't know, The Faces of Death, which was the first one of – there were several – I think Masks of Death was another franchise. But there were these films similar to the old health films like Reefer Madness where they'd have a guy in a lab coat at the beginning claim he was a documentarian or a scientist studying death. And then they just – they were almost anthologies at that point where it was all this footage of purported real-life gruesome deaths. And, and once again, part of the way they blurred that line and, and suspended disbelief is they would intermix – very well done special effects of deaths with real life like like security footage of a guy being being electrocuted in the electric chair or like real life documentary uh, footage of two dogs fighting so they mixed enough real stuff with the stuff that they had faked that it did skew the lines for a lot of people you know and i remember the faces of death stuff very very well because this is really uh, for me this is where i'm really starting to get into my horror fandom and we've talked 
many, many times before about the mom and pop video rental places even before Blockbuster. And the Faces of Death type movies were always a big deal at stores like that. I'm sure you remember that, don't you? I remember them in the corner. And actually, when I was still working at theaters, it was one of the same theaters under the chain that I worked at, but I didn't work at at the time. They would do the mm. Saturday, Saturday or Sunday night midnight shows of Faces of Death like once a month. Right. Obviously, they were making money because I think they made like six of them. It, was a, mm-hmm. it, was, it spawned a franchise. And Faces of Death was just the most well-known. Like I said, there were several of these like Mask of Death, and I think, and stuff like that. So I definitely think they had an effect on where we were going with this fake documentary, found footage type stuff. And around the same time as we're seeing the end of the Grindhouse exploitation era, one of the more prevalent subgenres in exploitation was the cannibal films. Once again, lurid, lurid subject matter that was taboo. They often were filmed in exotic locations that us as Americans and Europeans and people lived in cultured society, pulling the the curtain back, so to speak, into the deepest, darkest jungles of the Amazon and stuff. And Cannibal Holocaust, probably for what we consider found footage nowadays, was was probably the first example. And that came out in 19. And it's supposedly this footage that these three young documentarians made trying to go in to make a documentary about a cannibal tribe in the Amazon and then they're summarily captured by the tribe and killed and eaten and then the the, the footage that they filmed is is later discovered and then put together as a film and it was very very controversial at the time it's still controversial today even though it was released 41 years ago because there are several scenes in the movie of them killing animals to eat or, or to protect themselves, and the filmmaker, to make it realistic, once again trying to blur those lines, had his actors really kill the animals. These were real animals being killed. So I guess it wasn't a snuff film, but it was an animal stuff film. And a certain aspect, could you see that? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the type of thing that absolutely couldn't be done today for obvious reasons. That's the type of stuff right. even I'm finding. I'm not even sure I want to watch this now. <laughs> <laughs> and to give you an idea of how effective Roberto Daguerre, uh, the, the filmmaker who made Hannibal Holocaust, was at, at blurring those lines, he actually was brought up on murder charges in Italy that he basically made a snuff film and filmed the death of these poor. And he actually had to have the actors show up in court and testify like, look, we're fine. We're not dead. <laughs> and he had his special. There's a very, very graphic scene where the female in the movie, and it, it became the cover art, is impaled through her asshole. And then the state comes out of her mouth. And it, 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 you had these people in court going, but look at that. There's no way she survived that. And so they had to have the actress come in and testify. And he had to bring the special effects guys in and show how they did the magic, how they did that special effect. And that's crazy to think now in 2021 that a film was so effective and it's vi- on on screen depiction of violence that a filmmaker would actually be accused of killing somebody. <laughs> Isn't that amazing when you think about it? Well, yeah, but but. Again, in the 1980s, you know, late 70s, early 80s, that whole way of horrifically but very creatively disemboweling people, that art form really hadn't become the norm yet as far as horror movies go. We're talking well before Hostel and Saw movies. Right. (laughs) The the torture porn, as it would be called nowadays. But yeah, so you had brought up to me when we were prepping this, the next evolution, I think, is a return back to television. And you reminded me of a very effective kind of mockumentary found footage television show from 1983 called Special Bulletin, 
why don't you let our listeners and me kind of remind us what that was about and where where the TV was kind of going with this now. Yeah, what Special Bulletin was, it was a TV movie, but it was done up like it was a TV broadcast. Now, I don't think it was done necessarily live. It would have been shot in kind of like segments because it takes place over a day or two. Mm-hmm. But outside of the TV station being called like RBS or something like that, the letter R, the letter B, and the letter S, I don't know if that was intentional to make it sound like RBS, but... I was going to say the BS being the, 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 the titular right. point, right? <laughs> but the concept was these people that homemade effectively their own nuke and were making demands on this city in Maryland. So it was essentially terrorists having their own homemade nuke that they were going to set off if they didn't get what they wanted. And in the Ah. climax of the film, you see kind of that almost kind of night vision documentary style right down to the clock and the date being over in the corner. And you see these guys in their whole, whatever you call, what you put on the the, the, the hazmat suits, and they're trying right, the, to disarm it. And then you hear, a, oh, no, wait, 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 whoop. And then, and then everything goes to static, and then it cuts back to the film room, and the, the hosts and such, they're kind of scrambling over and sweating over themselves, like, oh, my gosh, what? They're, and, they're in total shock, yeah. Right. It, it was done very much like how a newscast might have done, where you realize you just saw a whole bunch of people die on camera. And yeah, that, not that, that was kind of how it ended. From what we would actually see, like Katie Couric on on September 11th, right? Like we're watching these national newscasters having to cover this live event where you're they're knowing, oh my gosh, a lot of people died. Yeah, and once again, I, I think we we were remiss if we didn't bring this up. We talked about Red Dawn a lot on other podcasts. Unless you lived in that era of the Cold War, you don't understand the the fear of a nuclear was very real. Right. It, it may have been manufactured. I'll give that caveat. There may have been the kind of the propaganda type thing. But as a citizen, the fear definitely. Yes. And I think I, I can't speak to this because I'm not a Russian. But I think the fear was true for Soviet citizens as much as it was American citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were as afraid we were going to drop the bomb on them as we, they were going to drop the bomb on us. So, look, you go back in real history and look at how close we got to that with the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis, that was 1963, so we were not this far removed from they're actually almost getting really close to there being a nuclear right. war. So That, I mean, that was, was uh, from a historical standpoint, that's probably what President Kennedy is going to be remembered most for. And obviously, he was assassinated. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, you're right. The way he handled the missile crisis is probably what he's, is going to be what he's re- remembered most for. Yeah, exactly. You know, and these are clever filmmakers, now TV producers, making a found footage slash mockumentary where they're blurring these lines and they're really playing on fears. I think there's even elements of that and what I wouldn't call found footage later on and stuff like Starship Troopers. Would you like to know more how they, they intersperse it with like these fake news articles? So mm-hmm. I remember the old television series for V based on the miniseries that came out around that time. Remember how each episode would open with a supposed news uh, broadcast of a freedom fighter fighting the Vs that week? So these techniques got used outside of just, I think, the found footage, mockumentary, pseudo-documentary genre, don't you? Absolutely. And for those of you who might not have seen the original V from the 1980s, there are three actors very important to the horror and fantasy genre in that. You got Mark Singer, you got a pre-Freddy Robert Englund, and you have Michael Ironside. Yes, but that was post-scanners, mm-hmm. but pre-Beastmaster and pre-Nightmare on Elm Street. So you've got one of the best heavies in the history of all the films. Oh, and by the way, Freddy Krueger and Beastmaster, just for extra. <laughs> and Freddy Krueger's a good guy in the end, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yep. And Mark Singer had that total early 80s action hero look, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. He definitely had the cheeks and the dimples and the eyes. Yeah. Blonde hair, blue eyes. Obviously, he didn't miss ab core day (laughs) when he went to the gym. So, But anyway, it's around this time, I think we kind of start getting away. This is, of course, in the horror genre. Specifically, we're moving into the slasher cycle. This is the heyday of Nightmare on Elm Street and the heyday of Friday the 13th and the heyday of Halloween. And so... I, I just think the, the found footage stuff wasn't being tapped into. We had gotten away from the exploitation cannibal stuff. We had gotten away from the supernatural stuff that would have been popular, like with The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby in the late 60s, early 70s. We're fully ensconced in the movie world of horror in the slashers. But once again, this is also a time where another form of medium that people entertain themselves is rising to popularity, and that would be video games. And one of the earliest video games to kind of tap into this blurring the lines that once again was very controversial would have been Night Trap, which came out when? I want to say like 87, 88? I think it would have been the 90s because it was a CD game. Oh, uh, that's right. It was. Yeah. What it was. It was. But if I, if, I, if I remember correctly, didn't it start Dana Plato, the, the actress from Different Strokes? Yes. Yeah. She was probably the biggest star from it, although I believe one of the police or one of the authority figures in it was the guy that voiced Destro in the G.I. Joe. Okay. So for what but that's for worth. The, those that aren't familiar with the game, correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, because I, I, I remember I never played it. But wasn't it – it was like this new style. Instead of being pixelated, it was actually videotapes. And correct. Video you, footage, yeah. Video footage. And it was like a slumber party of Dana Plato and like Playmate-type girls being stalked. Mm-hmm. And at certain points of the game, you would have to make decisions, kind of like those old choose-your-own-books we read when we were kids. Isn't that correct? Right. Yeah, yeah. What it was was the game was full motion video, and you were essentially security, for the lack of a better term, and you worked all the security cameras in the house. And if you were at it at the right time, you would catch one of the bad guys trying to sneak in, and you could then activate the booby traps and catch the bad guys. And if you got through the game and catched all the bad guys, everything was fine. But if enough bad guys got through... They killed the, the girls, didn't they? They killed the girls, yeah. And, that, and that's really where the controversy would come in because you would see the news coverage and you'd see, see, and in this scene from this game, they're pulling blood out of this uh, innocent victim or something like that. And, of course, I'm watching it going, no, that's one of the bad scenes. You're, the, the whole idea is you're supposed to prevent that from happening. Right, right. And there, if I remember right, there was a lot of fourth wall breaking, wasn't there? Like where Dana Plato would actually look at you as the player through the camera. Exactly, because you you are working security cameras. Though. But what I was meaning was in this news coverage, they wouldn't say that, oh, this is when the bad stuff happens. They made it seem like that was actually the goal of the game, was to let exactly. the girls die. That was actually the opposite. Right. But once again, you're dealing with lurid material, and this is not pixelated titties. These were real girls' breasts, like you said, video capture. So mm-hmm. that, that probably lent some of the controversy as well, I would think, that – as the evolution of video games happens, it's, uh, if I remember right, this predates Mortal Kombat and the pixelated blood and violence of Mortal Kombat. Correct. You know? uh, this, I think, is before there was the across-the-line rating systems for games. The you know, ESRB, like, yeah. Right. The, the, but I think Sega themselves, or whoever produced it, uh, they put their own rating on the game and, and gave it essentially a mature rating. And we're telling their distributors not to sell it to keep people under like 16 or 18 or whatever, right? Cor- correct, yeah. Right. So so now we've got literature, we've got 
radio examples, we've got television examples, we've got movie examples, and now video game examples of blurring this line, presenting lurid, taboo subject matter in a way that makes you go, did this really happen? Is this real? And now we're back up to where we, where we started with the Gruesome Twosome and Blair Witch. And I, I, I don't think I'm understating. This completely changed the paradigm into this approach to entertain people. Are you agree with me with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think there was a lot of people that were inspired by Blair Witch that then went on to be filmmakers. It wouldn't surprise me if, uh, what was his name, Clay, was one of them. Because I'm, yeah. I'm assuming he's a few years, years younger than us. So right. he, prob- he might have been a kid when, that, that, when Blair Witch first came out. And it literally became... If you weren't alive back then or old enough to be paying attention, you do not understand. It truly was a national phenomenon, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you listen to the review of, of the movie we just we just had in the last segment. Between the marketing campaign and st- it really jump started the found footage. And much like I was just talking about the slasher genre really taking over in the eighties, well, we all know that's the success of Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the Thirteenth in the late seventies, early eighties. One of the unfortunate things in Hollywood is, well, if it, if it worked one time, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I think that this happens in films directly because of the Blair Witch. This idea that studios are like, well, if this worked one time. But I think also some of it is what you've talked about earlier when we reviewed Blair Witch and Blackwell Ghost. Is that it also for young filmmakers trying to get their foot in the door who don't have a big budget? These some of these are, are films that aren't that expensive to make. So the return on the investment is the potential for that is much larger. That's the term I was trying to come up with earlier. I was talking about the budget and such. Yeah, return, return on investment. On the, return on the investment. Yeah. Or as the saying, I, and I, I will openly admit I stole this from the movie The Girl Next Door, and the great Timothy Oliphant's character says this. You got to ask yourself, kid, is the juice worth the squeeze? That is kind of the approach that filmmakers have to have, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. it worth me putting this much time and money into it? On the back end, am I going to make it back and then some? So, But I think probably after Blair Witch, if you're going to stay in the movie genre, the next really, really successful, and I think in many ways the, the franchise has even succeeded the Blair Witch franchise because let's be honest, the Blair Witch franchise outside of the original has had questionable returns at best, critically and commercially, would be the Paranormal Activity movie. Um, and I, I will fully admit and people are going to say, how in the hell do you host a, a podcast called Examining the Dead, admitting this? I don't think I've ever seen any of the paranormal activities all the way through. Uh, neither have I. Certainly not all the way through. I- well, there's like, what, so there's like, what, seven or eight of them, you know? Right, right. And, but I figured that's probably why they kept making them, because it, it's all filmed with probably store-bought equipment. So, again, return mm-hmm. on investment. Exactly. They were ch- made very cheap, and they made a lot of money. And I don't remember, maybe you do. But I don't remember there being the the controversy with them and this discussion online and in office spaces about they being real as much as there was with Blair Witch. But there was some, wasn't there? There might have been, but I have seen enough of the paranormal activity stuff to see how it was done. And it's pretty clear going into it that it is, again, just a creative way to tell a story because right. just, just the way people move and such. And I know in the first one, it's like, the woman gets out of bed and supposedly just stands there for like eight hours well, just glaring at somebody. There's a famous scene where, where like her hair gets grabbed and she gets pulled out of the room by her hair, obviously. And there's nothing mm-hmm. there to grab her hair, but her hair moves. I, I could go into how they probably use static electricity or hidden wires to, to pull off that effect. But 
it's still convincing. But obviously, I think Paranormal Activity, if you want to look just at a franchise, found footage, mockumentary, documentary type stuff, it's probably the most commercially successful, even with all the money Blair Witch made back on its original. Uh, you run into the wiki here to look at what the totals are for the entire franchise? Yeah, I was going to try to see if we had a grand total as far as how much. I mean, it's been much... pretty successful. I know that. Yeah, it looks like the first one alone was $193 million Wow. Off of a budget, of uh, original production budget of 15000 And post-production of 200000 So $230,000 all told for production and marketing, and it makes back almost $200 million. That, right. I would say that's a pretty good return on your investment. Definitely. And that's just the first film. So mm-hmm. it, it spawned an entire franchise. So, well, you know, you're gonna, Seth's pulling up, ladies, Seth's pulling up uh, the, fran- the whole franchise. Yeah, uh, all, Wikipedia all page. the movies put together, according to Wikipedia, the entire budget was $26 million and box office of $890 million. So there you go. Wow. So that, that I think that even surpasses the Blair Witch. Yeah, possibly even in percentage, yeah. Yeah, even in percentage. But this has become, for good or bad, a, and there's a lot of debate within the horror community, is whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. But it's I definitely think it's, it, it's here to stay because even though slashers aren't as popular as they were in the 80s, they're still around. And we've talked before how horror genre is cyclical. So I don't think found footage is going to go away. As a matter of fact, I would say looking at where found footage filming went once it became popular because of Blair Witch, that they're finding other areas to make not just ghost stories, to tell these fascinating stories. And you brought up in our prep, it, it, it wasn't just film. It also continued along the television lines with shows like Ghost Hunters, which I know you used to watch on a fairly regular basis. Right, right. Now, Ghost Hunters, obviously, it's a reality show. So there are definitely elements of it that are written. I'm sure anytime they talk to a client, that part's probably Well, yeah, because you, you got to get them to sign a waiver. Can you be on film? That kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. But I always thought that Ghost Hunters was a real thing because they always go into these expecting to disprove the haunting and probably two thirds, three quarters of the time they, they right away say, no, this is what's happening. They'll hear the noises and they'll say, Oh, we're plumbers by the way. Yeah. This is definitely pipes making this noise, but there has been a few. I remember there's one in, in a lighthouse where you saw kind of this shadowy figure kind of look down from a a flight of stairs that that would circle up the lighthouse and like kind of dashes off. (laughs) And and then you like see it pop up like another two or three flights further up the stairs and peering down again. And that's the type of stuff they couldn't directly explain. And that, but so you don't see full apparitions or anything like that, but there were usually that type of thing where you might see a shadow move by or something. But there was definitely enough there to go, okay, that's really hard to explain away. Right. Right, because there was even one, I think it took place in a museum or something like that, Mm -hmm. and they were hearing these noises all over the place, but since they couldn't catch anything definitively on camera, they left saying, no, we fully believe what happened is somebody was running around in there who knew the layout of the place, and they were just pulling this until we see otherwise. So they basically, they came to the conclusion, it was somebody who was fucking with them. That's the right. conclusion the case. Right. But that's okay. how they, yeah, e- even for stuff, for noises and such. Now, they, they didn't explain that lighthouse one, but for stuff where they're just hearing noises, they're like, okay, yeah, for all we know, there could be somebody out there. So until we know otherwise, we're going to say it's that. Yeah. Well, and I think that those shows, like, because I can't remember the name of the one that I watched somewhat. I've watched them, binged a few. It was a group of guys that were called the Tennessee Wraith Chasers. Mm-hmm. And I cannot remember the name of the show, but I was, they appealed to me because they were a bunch of good old boy Southerners. They were me and my buddies, basically. 
that had a mm-hmm. fascination with supernatural, and because they were good old Southern boys that were raised in, in church, I found it funny that they all they said a prayer before they would start their investigation. <laughs> Dear Lord, help us and, and pass the fried chicken. Amen. I was like, <laughs> as a Southerner, I can kind of relate to that, and, and I do think. Whether you believe it or not, I think a lot of the, of, the, of the people that do these documentary ghost hunter type shows that definitely fall under this broader umbrella of the found footage documentary type stuff, I think a lot of them do actually believe at some level. Right. They may be debunkers going in wanting to disprove it, but the fact that they're willing to go in tells you that they're not adverse to the concept that this might be, you know? Right. We're going to do all we can to disprove it. And I think that they differ from the films that we've seen since Blair Witch because the films are meant to be pure entertainment. And these are meant to be a pure entertainment, too. But I think they're a little bit more closer to being a real documentary because they are reality television. Is that kind of always been your thought, too? Yeah, especially for stuff like Ghost Hunters. Like, it's what I was trying to say earlier. It's like, I believe that the investigations that they record are real, even though there's clearly stuff that they, that is uh, filmed and written to set up to kind of establish sure. the, the setting. It's like I used to always say as a pro wrestler, and I'm not the only pro wrestler that says this. When you fans, like, for example, the famous Pipe Bomb promo by CM Punk. Oh my gosh, that was awesome. That was that was totally not scripted. Anything that happens on camera was scripted. <laughs> right, right. It's the way you know, I put it when it comes to WWE. You are not going to get a live mic on national television unless Vince McMahon knows exactly what you are going to say. And I think when you watch any reality television, include, but especially the stuff like Ghost Hunters, there are always going to be elements realized this was staged and filmed. It just mm-hmm. has to. I have a little bit of experience in television because of my wrestling background. Believe me, it, it, it makes for better. It makes for better television, for lack of a better term. But I also think to get away from the television back into the movie, since Paranormal Activity and since Blair Witch, we've seen a lot of of other things that touched on the found footage. I think you've got a Quarantine, which was uh, takes the idea of demonic possession slash zombies. And made it a found footage. You know, I was about to was, say quarantine. Was, Didn't we just go through that? Right. <laughs> Which, and, and, and it, it was a re, it was an American remake of a Spanish film with the same storyline, where it's a, a news crew that gets trapped in a building where there's there's some kind of infection zombie that are making these people turn into zombies. So you've got that. You've got things like where you seeing the blending of sci-fi and horror and found footage in like Apollo 18 which was a supposed found footage movie where, of course, there was no really no Apollo 18. I think the last Apollo mission was, what, 14? Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. But the whole set of the movie is that we actually did uh, a 15, a 16, a, a 17, and 18, and we just didn't go public with it. And this is the footage from Apollo 18 where we went unknowns to the American public to the dark side of the moon, and then the footage is – Oh, shit, the Soviets also have been here, too, which also never really happened, right? Right. And the big the big reveal at the end of this one is, why are, why do they find only the bodies of the cosmonaut? And they put all these moon rocks on it, and then the security footage for the lander flying back to Earth, the rocks start moving like insects. Great reveal. So so now we're blending the sci-fi-based horror with and 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 blurring the lines with reality, because Apollo really was the, the moon landing project for nasa i think you look at things like cloverfield where it's it's the blend of the kaiju movie and the kaiju the monster the godzilla type movie with a found footage have you seen cloverfield i i, I always figured that might be one you watch because you do like kaiju yeah yeah i don't want to say it was a disappointment because you didn't see as much of the monster you think you're used to seeing but, godzilla yeah <laughs> right exactly i i i always want that full reveal and somewhere in the third act 
but but you will openly admit it was a, like you say is a clever way to tell that type of story from a yeah, different yeah. point of view yeah that trailer was amazing that that teaser trailer yeah. that what was it, the head of the statue of liberty sliding mm-hmm. down the street right but so we've had a lot of of movies that have gone this route now since blair witch and that leads us to blackwell ghost which is i like we said in our review in the last segment i think the way it was marketed and presented by the filmmaker Turner Clay as legitimately a documentary, it kind of goes, harkens back to the Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. Whereas we knew Cloverfield, we knew Apollo 18 were big budget Hollywood productions that were meant to, to force us to, to suspend our disbelief. This one is going more the route of, of Cannibal Holocaust, Blair Witch, of, of, of the, 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 the Mondo films we talked about earlier, where they're trying to present this as faces of death. This is 100% legit. So I think, I personally think you can't flood the market with those, every other film being that. But I think if it's well done, every once in a while, it will work. What say ye? Yeah, yeah. Because when you have something good that comes along, again, whether it's horror or whether it's action movie, anything like that, it brings along a flood of imitations or at least stuff Mm. that was inspired. Even even if it's well-inspired and done well, it still kind of goes back to, well, we wouldn't have had Nightmare on Elm Street if it wasn't or Friday the 13th or Halloween and like that. But Right, right. It, it's kind of sifting through the pale imitations or the ones that aren't done uh, so well, but getting down to the ones that are done very well, like, like Blackwell Ghost was. Right. And on that note, I think that's a great segue is to our, you know, kind of wrap this up with recommendations that both of us kind of have. Or if you want to go down that rabbit hole into found footage, some of the ones we think are, are better, more well done. Start out with the Hannibal, Cannibal Holocaust. Understanding it is not for everybody. And I put a major caveat on, on my recommendation here. For historical value, it's definitely important. But if you don't think you can handle the over-the-top graphic nature of it, especially now knowing that the animal death scenes in the movie were real animals really being killed on film, I get why you want to put a pass on it. But I still think it's worth knowing about this movie and, and, and maybe if nothing else, just looking it up on IMDb and reading about it or maybe reading a review of it if you don't feel you could stomach seeing it. The another next suggestion we have would be Blair Witch Project, the original. I don't really recommend the other ones if you want to go, but I think if you really want to go into found footage, you, you need to watch Blair Witch. You know, I think it's it's important because it did kind of really kickstart where we are today. Another one we mentioned earlier, I think we both agreed on was Cloverfield, because like you said, you you're a kaiju guy. You did. They didn't show enough of the of, of, of the monster for your taste, but it was still a very clever and ingenious way of telling a kaiju story. Exactly. Another one I suggest is Apollo 18. I really liked that one a lot because I, I, I like sci fi horror. You like alien. I think right. when sci fi and horror are blended well, it's really, really strong. When it's not, it's bad. <laughs> I think we can agree on that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but when it's done well, it's done very well usually. Like The Thing, like Event Horizon, like Alien. I think Apollo 18's in that that same kind of blending of sci-fi and horror. Another one that I listed two years ago on my month of October, 31 days of lesser-known horror movies and put the trailer up, was a movie I found watching horror movies on a streaming service called Hell House LLC. This is a found footage film that is purported to be footage that was found by a production company of a group of individuals that ran a haunted attraction in the month of October. And we know from the start of the film that there was an accident the night they opened in 2009 that led to the death of 15 people, workers at the the, the haunted house and guests. 
and then the the film is is purportedly a documentarian receiving footage of handheld cameras that the, the the crew that ran it and some of the guests had of what really happened because it's 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 dismissed off as a equipment malfunction by the local authorities so and it quickly devolves into a supernatural very well done i i can't speak how, that quite frankly of all found footage movies hell house llc is probably my there is two sequels a part two called hell house llc 2 the abaddon hotel and hell house llc 3 lake of fire I don't strongly suggest those as i did they were they were interesting takes trying to turn this into a trilogy. I just don't feel like they didn't really stick the landing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but that I think that you always run that risk, I think, in sequels, in any genre. But another one that we've actually talked about before, and this has spawned a franchise. I think there's three of these now. I've, I've seen all of them. I can't remember how many there are. But if you go back a few years when we had Dudders, Katie Dudas and, and Greg Okaba on, we talked about the haunted, the haunted attraction industry i led me to we talked about this movie's called the houses that october built and once again you're now blending found footage with haunted attractions which obviously are a a multi-million dollar industry in the united states now uh, in around halloween and this is found footage of documentarians who want to look into the haunted attraction industry and then weird shit starts happening and they're catching it on film because they are documentarians and it's almost alluded to in it that they are really being stalked by workers at haunted houses because they're pissed that they're going to reveal some of the secrets but it's it, i thought that i thought those were very well done i once like like i just said with hell house i think the first is probably the strongest of all but they're all pretty good and then lastly we, we both strongly suggest the blackwell ghost which was the the most current 2017 was the release date. The the most current one is, is Blackwell Goes Five, which was just released last year in 2020. And there's a lot of debate online whether the sixth one is when the, when is the sixth one coming out because obviously cliffhanger part five. So you, you not even a horror guy said you would suggest Blackwell. Yeah, yeah. Like I said again, clever way of telling a story. Yeah, and and like I said, I think that unlike Cloverfield, Apollo 18, Hell House, Houses at October Built. You know going into those that they're all movies, even mm-hmm. though they're very well done and very convincing in their handheld documentary style of the film. Blackwell Ghost is not presented that way. It's presented much like Blair Witch that this is actually footage of a guy trying to prove something supernatural. And it's it's like we said before, it's free and only an hour long. The first one is right now on Amazon Prime. So an hour is not that much of an investment of your time and can't beat the price. Absolutely. So you got any final thoughts as we wrap up this episode of Examining the Dead on found footage, on where we're at now? Do you think they're going to die? you think it's going to continue to go? Do you see any evolution? What are your final thoughts on found footage? Yeah, I, I don't think they're ever truly going to go away because, again, the return on investment when they're done well can be uh, very high. I, I think we're kind of getting into the thing now with like webcams, 3D stuff, interactive things. It would not surprise me if there's some sort of interactive demo or something like that that turns into like something almost a VR type element. Yeah, yeah, and maybe something like that, and then it turns into a horror element from there. Almost kind of like uh, I'm probably giving somebody some idea for free here. Uh, <laughs> how they're like like the tape from the ring or something like that, where you see sure. it, you die. Maybe, yeah. maybe there's like this immersive uh, VR game where everybody who plays it dies, or something. I could see right. something like that, and then you mold that with documentary footage. I could see something like that being very entertaining on the sheep. Yep. 
I think for me, I'm with you. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think like every other thing in all forms of entertainment, certain styles wax and wane in popularity. And we're kind of on maybe a little of a waning downhill slide with with found footage. But I don't think they're ever going to fully go away. And I think with the Blackwell ghost, he didn't reinvent the wheel on what story he was telling or how he was telling it, but how he marketed it and and the little small things he used to blur those lines as long as you can continue to find ways to do that, there's still going to be a market. And I think you you make a good point with the immersive VR type stuff now. That might be the next step in evolution. So it, it's like everything else. It's it's a wait and see. I personally think found footage is one of the more maligned subgenres of horror. I understand it. I'm not a huge fan of found footage. But with that being said, I don't think it's as as I think it's more maligned than it should. I think is we gave several examples here of what I think are very good found footage films that I would strongly encourage any of our listeners to watch, to search them out and watch them. So when you come up with a list of a half a dozen films, you can't say that you think it all sucks. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been the latest episode of Examining the Dead. We, we're glad you came along for the ride. We hope that you, you enjoyed what you heard. Let us know what you think. You can you can always post on the Examining the Dead Facebook page or on geekvilleradio.com, Examining the Dead. Let us know. Have you uh, had any kind of weird alien abduction ghost in your past and you just wish you had a camera? Let us know. Do you any of these films like Blackwell Ghost or, or Blair Witch, are they real? Could they be real? And as always, let us know how we're doing. Give us a review. Give us a rating. Subscribe. That way, and click notifications. That way, since this is one of our not regular podcasts, that's the best way to make sure you don't miss an episode. Anything you want to want to add, Seth? How can people get a hold of you if they want to talk about special bulletin and 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 the, and the Cold War scare of nineteen early nineteen eighties for you? Where where can they find you? Well, Geekville Radio, we are on Facebook and Twitter under that guys, and like you said, Examining the Dead is also has its own Facebook page. And really, anything at geekvilleradio.com, you can reply to. You can uh, set a comment there. And I definitely watch that. If you do set a comment on a story at geekvilleradio.com, same thing if you just want to post something on the on the social media on Twitter or Facebook. All right, well. We're going to turn off the lights in the, in the wooden shack out here in the woods. And Seth is going to go back to hiding in his underground bunker there. <laughs> and I'm going to go back to the asylum. But until then, don't forget, don't ever go trick-or-treating in Haddonfield. Don't ever go camping at Crystal Lake. And don't ever fall asleep in Springwood. Until then, try to stay out of the dark. Examining the Dead is part of the Geekville Radio Network and part of the Wrestling Brethren Podcast family and do not represent the opinions of Geekville Radio or any of their affiliates. Examining the Dead is not sponsored or endorsed by any product or service unless specifically stated. Some media used on Examining the Dead is part of its respective copyright owners, all rights reserved. Theme music by Kevin McLeod can be found at Incompetech.com. So, I'm, so I'm, when I'm watching all these Blackwell ghosts, I'm sitting here because I'm just as much of a comic book geek to be going every time something happened. Where is John Constantine when you need him? Where is Doctor Strange when you need him? <laughs> oh, see, I, w- I had it all wrong. I heard Blackwell ghosts. And I got noticed like, Jerry Blackwell's nowhere to be seen in this. <laughs> <laughs>